fearless. 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 Fearless presence. Today I have Carrie Gallant and I forgot realizing now I forgot to introduce myself. I'm Melanie Weller. And I'm so excited to have Carrie here because she's been one of my business coaches. And we did some business coach training together a number of years ago. Carrie is an executive leadership coach and author of Conversation Secrets for Tomorrow's Leaders, 21 Obvious Secrets Leaders Do Not Use Enough. She's a former lawyer and executive. And with that background, she truly understands the challenges many leaders navigate. Carrie weaves psychology, neuroscience, and improvisation with strategy as she inspires and empowers her clients to think bigger, negotiate more powerfully, and step up into greater influence and impact. Thank you so much for being here, Carrie. Thank you, Melanie. I'm so delighted to be here. I'm thrilled to spend this time with you. I want to start with how we met because through uh, Judith Glazer's conversational intelligence training. And unfortunately, Judith passed away a couple of years ago, but it is such extraordinary work. And could you just talk a little bit about that and how it's influenced uh, your from where you were then to where you are now? Yeah, thank you. That's a great question. And uh, yeah, it's so great to come back to where we started with um, and how we met. Um, and, you know, Judith Glazer's, Judith E. Glazer's work on conversational intelligence was very groundbreaking at the time. Um, and what I loved about her work was it really helped me to synthesize so many of the things that I had been doing in my career as a mediator, a, a conflict resolver, as a negotiation consultant, as a coach, um, and, and, and the interests I have in psychology um, and her weaving it with neuroscience the science of how our brains work in conversation and how we can change other people's brains through conversation was phenomenal. And so like you, I really enjoyed um, learning from her, working in the, in the program, being certified. And in fact, Melanie, you might not be aware of this, but the book that I co-authored, my two co-authors are also CIQ grads. Oh, that's so fantastic. It was when I was uh, actually, the, as a certified coach, I was peer coaching the next cohort. And Mindy Gewertz and uh, Stephen Hamilton-Clark were in my group. And so that's how we met. I and mean, it was through a course of conversation that we, we thought about doing some work together. And lo and behold, it turned into this book. And we certainly do draw on many of the things that we all had uh, incorporated into our various leadership and executive coaching practices through Judith's work in conversational intelligence. I love how the business community has really adopted this approach so far ahead of the medical community. There's research that shows that the words, your emergency, like first responders and emergency room doctors use determine life and death outcomes or influence Mm -hmm. life and death outcomes. And, uh, you know, and I certainly came out, like I came to conversational intelligence with uh, kind of with the healthcare space in mind. And I'm wondering, like, can you talk about some of the specific ways that it shows up? Because I think business has this amazing opportunity mm-hmm. to keep people out of the healthcare system in the first place. Oh, 
<laughs> yes. And Melody, I don't know if you remember this because I'm not sure uh, this particular bit of research would have shown up in, in the, in the um, part of the program that you were in. But I remember you just reminded me of this fantastic research that actually took, takes place in the medical profession where there was strong research that showed that when emergency room doctors and other doctors um, were able to talk with their patients in a way and have a conversation so that that person felt that they were heard, it reduced medical malpractice cases. Wow. The rates of medical malpractice cases went down, declined rapidly, which totally paralleled some of the research out of the mediation community around apology. So I know that in the U.S. and here in Canada as well, there's a lot of uh, not even medical malpractice cases, but civil litigation and um, the, the civil litigation um, uh, jury awards were exploding in the 90s and the 2000s in hospital cases. So the movie Civil Procedure, which is based on a book by, why is his name escaping me? John Grisham. I think it was John Grisham. Um, is based on a, no, no, it's not John Grisham. It was uh, um, the other guy. He wrote a few books. Um, Tom Clancy? Somebody on your line will Pardon me? Was it Tom Clancy? I'm trying to think no, who would be in John Grisham's. No, okay. it starts with a P. Starts with a P. Okay. Um, another lawyer who writes uh, thrillers, but this one was based, civil action is actually based on a real live case of uh, a, a suit, lawsuit against Massachusetts General, um, the co- where doctors, um, where some of the medical, well, medical practice had caused uh, quadriplegic injury to a person. That was at the start of the movie. And I often use it, actually, that clip to teach negotiation because so much happens in that opening clip, but you got to go watch that. Um, my point is this, is that in the mediation community and the dis- conflict resolution community, a lot of the research has shown that when apologies are allowed, they actually diminish these cases because what people want to know is they want to know they've been heard. They want to know that their concerns have been understood. And even if they don't like the outcome that's happened after that, it's being heard. It's being heard. And so an apology, it's been avoided for a long time in the legal world. And as a former lawyer, I understand this because it would set up potentially that um, organization or the doctor for taking the legal blame and the money and everything that would go along with that. Um, Here in British Columbia is there was an apology act that was brought into place about 15 years ago to recognize the value of allowing apologies that didn't have to mean legal accountability. It didn't have to mean as, uh, you know, we're sorry this happened to you or, you know, it wasn't taking, wasn't saying we did wrong or we're to blame. It was was a way of making an apology without having to mean it's a legal case because that's always been the fear in going to court. And the same principle, I raise it because the same principle is here, Melanie, I think that's underneath it all, is that we have a core fundamental human need that's been identified in psychology years ago. Um, I want to say Carl Sagan, and I know that that's that's a science fiction writer, Carl Rogers. I think he was the first um, of the psychologists to identify this, and others behind him have also reified this. So there's a core fundamental human need to be heard and understood. And that's the core of the success of conversational intelligence, of having those conversations, first responders who are able to see and hear and let people know that they've been heard and seen. And true in the business world too, CEOs, managers, even employees. If we can recognize as an employee to our leaders, if we can recognize that we understand that they're under a lot of pressure, do you think they're going to want to do things for us and with us? Probably. It raises the likelihood that we're going to be able to do something together when we have recognized that. 
Absolutely. I know that uh, I could speak a little bit to what's out there in the workers' comp research too, in terms of what keeps somebody on a workers' comp case from suing. And it's really that, like how well they feel cared for, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it is that good communication and are you getting what you need and what are your concerns and really being able to have that safe space to voice what's on your mind and, and really to be your, be yourself. And Judith so brilliantly laid out those levels of conversation Yes. To really, uh, you know, I love her process of level one, level two, level three, just mm-hmm. to recognize where you, uh, where we are. Cause, and that the business research shows that those level three conversations, which are where the co-creative spaces, where it is safe to express yourself, the companies that allow that make the most money, which I think is fascinating. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it's here's what's interesting for your listeners, you know, level one and level two, level three, there's a difference between transactional conversations, relational conversations and transformational conversations. We need them all. It's not that any of these are bad or one's better than the other. It's about the context and what we're trying to create. Uh, We can get to that co-creation. We can only get to collaboration, which is part of innovation, which every organization out there says they want. We can really only truly get to collaboration. We actually talk about this in our book too, when we can get connection and trust. So our book is actually divided into three categories, connection, sorry, trust, connection, and collaboration. And we don't get to the third without the first two. And, and, you know, as as Judith has talked about in the neuroscience, there's really, there's a physiological reason for that. And I know, you know, it's also connected to the vagus nerve. Absolutely. Because if we're not if we're not in our parasympathetic system that part of our neurology neuro, neurophysiology that is the relaxation the not I'm being chased by a tiger lion or bear if we're not in that place we can't be creative we cannot access the parts of our brain that are creative that feel safe enough to put the ideas forward um, and and to be heard when we're in fight and flight, that's when we're we're wanting to knock things down. We're wanting to, you know, get away, avoid, or or fight. I want to go back to uh, to what you said about how innovation is what most companies say that they want. Because I I agree with you. That's most most of them say that they want that, but. I often wonder if fund, if really that's true. You know, they say they want it, but then when somebody becomes really innovative, it can also be perceived as a threat within the organization. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And so how do you, like, what's the difference between a company that can really embrace organization or a group within a company that can really, em- or, uh, can embrace innovation and a group that feels threatened by it? That's a great question and an observation too. Um, You know, I mean, we have plenty of evidence in our world of uh, saying one thing out of one side of the mouth and and doing something out of the other. Uh, You know, Judith talked about that as the difference between intention and impact. And we often see this uh, where we say things like, oh, I didn't intend that, or I didn't mean to say that. That's not what I've intended to say. As a way of getting out of saying something inappropriate or racist or uh, sexist or something like that. Oh, you know, I I didn't intend you to take it that way. Well, what's the impact of your actions, right? 
And so when we have a disconnect between what we're intending to do and what our, our, what our impact is, that's a place where we might want to examine. And so I think what you're talking about, Melanie, might be a stated intention that might be different from the real intention. Um, and it's certainly a distinction between the, either one of those two and the impact that's actually happened. And so if organizations truly value innovation, I think the organizations that truly value innovation also have valued and understood what their purpose is. What's the purpose of the organization? Why is innovation important? And what type of innovation is important? So that they can communicate clearly their expectations of what they're trying to create so that the team together knows what they're being asked to do, understands what it, what the creative aspect is to do. You know, Melanie, I, I often talk about, you know, there's a reason why we say things like think outside the box, because we need a box, you know, as a frame to identify what it is that we're looking at. We can't think outside the box if we don't know what the box is really and truly. I, I love that because the structure, like having us, you have to have a fundamental structure in in place to work with, even if you dismantle it and rebuild it and everything like that, you've got it. You have to have the Legos at some level to, uh, to put together. And those core values are kind of what, what I heard in that was that basically, you know, companies need to, or people within the organization really need to understand what the core values are. And if a company that's really living their core values and their purpose really clearly, then, Builds the communication and trust that allows the uh, the creativity and innovation and doesn't feel threatened mm-hmm. by it. Yeah, I totally agree. As an executive lead- leadership coach, what are some of the main issues that you help your clients with? Uh, let's see, main issues. Well, you know, sometimes. Um, so I I find that. Leaders like everyone, and especially leaders, though, because I think leaders, executive leaders, and the, and the clients that I'm working with are willing to go here. And what I mean by this, that is this, is that this, the challenges that they're faced with, they understand that they're not just the external challenges, like how do I manage my team? How do I make a, make a decision here? How do I create the strategy to get to the outcome goals that I, that I want to for my organization, for my team? They're also internal, internal things that they're struggling with. And they understand that in order to get to the external success, they they got to mine the internal, what's going on internally. You know, it, it, it's kind of like the athlete who uh, wants to win a race. She not only is training her physical body, but she's training her mind because it's it's the mind stuff. It's the mind garbage that often gets in the way of the body's physical success. Even if there's talent, innate talent, um, coupled with all the hard work and high performance. High performance coaches talk about this all the time too. When we look at high performance, uh, we can look at the areas where the mindset, the internal chatter, uh, how we're dealing with that. So I with my, I do the inner and the outer game with my clients because they want to play a bigger game overall um, and they want to enhance their team's capacity to do that as well, their organizations. And so they know, like a high-performance athlete, that they need to do both. I love that so much. And you know that I I have my own way of kind of helping people with that inner uh, inner and outer game. And, and we've come so far, even in just the last 
seven years or so that you and I have known each other in like in the collective arena of really understanding that your body is an expression of your Mm -hmm. mind, that Mm -hmm. you can't just, you know, that when your body is, you're having a visceral reaction that there's, that that's a, uh, you know, can be a mindset mm-hmm. obstacle. Absolutely. I interviewed a uh, man recently, and we talked a little bit about his uh, his stage fright issues. And because I work with mainly with women, I'm so I was so struck with how. Uh, kind of like straightforward that he saw the problem and that it wasn't, there wasn't, there weren't a lot of stories that went with it or anything like that, that it just like, Oh, it was like this. And I just made this decision and then it was better. And he was able to make that mindset shift. I'm curious in working with executive women, do you find like, do you find differences in how like you're the male and female executives deal with problems because I find, you know, like there, I mean, we all know that there are some differences, but I find that, um, I would say sometimes women can, uh, or they have a harder time just accessing that no nonsense pathway. Yeah. Yeah. And I love this question, Melanie, because there is, I absolutely see it. Um, and it's, I, I still don't believe fundamentally that it's an absolute innate thing an innate gendered male, female, or even masculine, feminine thing, I think it's largely enculturated. Largely enculturated. Um, I remember, I think it was years ago, and I think it was when I was reading Audre Lorde. Um, it was in the context of reading deeply into uh, race culture readings and talking about internalized oppression. And I understood what that means. And I do believe that this is what we're talking about, is that we internalize what the society has told us. And so women have so many messages thrown at them. And we have such a short history of being in the workplace. We have such a minimal amount of representation still, especially at higher levels, to see what's possible for us and to see many women succeeding that without being torn down. I mean, look at the the, the U.S. Supreme Court, the the hearings on the new U.S. Supreme Court justice and the gauntlet that she had to go through, the gauntlet that she had to go through and being torn down. Those types of things scare people off, scare women off from putting their heads out there. We were burned at the stake, had our heads chopped off. You know, we, we know this history and, you know, women are currently still being torn down for being who they are um, in the press, uh, for what they wear, for what their hair was doing with their hair. I mean, I, even before we started, I tried to neaten down my hair because, you know, <laughs> it's our appearance so is everything. We are judged constantly in a way that men typically are not. And so I have this conversation with my husband a lot, too. I mean, he's, he's a very bright, uh, very empathetic. He understands and agrees with me on a lot of what I'm doing. He supports what I'm doing. So I, I use him as my barometer all the time. I said, does this, is this, is this a real difference? Would this be like what? And so I, said, I bounce things off him a lot too. And I remember one day years ago and I, I said to him, I said, what is this provider thing? <laughs> and you know, there is something that comes in. Maybe that part is innate. I don't know. 
Um, but it's also the words. I think women are providers in the household. We tend not to use that word. We tend not to think of ourselves as the provider. Um, and whereas I think many, for many men, that's part of the drive is to be the provider or at least a provider, a provider of some kind, right? And so there's a driver there. I'm going a little bit longer on this one, Melanie, because I want to circle, bring it back and to circle around why I'm saying all this. Because I do think that, and this has been my experience, when I coach a man and he says, okay, well, you know, we work through a few things. I give him a few tips or give him some ideas, goes and does them. For a lot of my women clients, doubt, some kind of fear starts to eat away, get in the way of them doing just that thing. Many will take it on and go and do it, but there'll be something that's holding them back or they're not quite putting it in there. Or even being able to answer it, we, we second guess. Women tend to second guess themselves all the time. I had just had a conversation recently with a senior vice president in a major organization. And she said she suffers from imposter syndrome all the time. Now, she deals with it. She doesn't stop her from doing something, but she still has it. Like, she still has to question it. So energy goes into that kind of thing all the time. Now, this is not to say that men don't, men don't have imposter syndrome too. The rate is, tends to be much higher for women. And it persists even up the ranks, again, for a lot of the reasons I, I alluded to at the beginning. Yes, to to all of that. And the it's so, um, uh, you know, it, in my own work, I've been talking about the uh, science or, the, uh, or making the case in the science of really pulling confidence from your bones or how the physiology of confidence mm. really comes from your, from your bones. And I think women don't get, we don't get really very many role models of like women that are really in their bones. Like yeah. men, even when they're wrong are really good at being in their bones, like in that structure that there's just a, like, you know, the, that, uh, or Judith would have called it the, that addiction to being right. Even if you're wrong, you know, like, or just, you know, in that presence that they're, that they have that is so well embodied, uh, I'd never thought of it that way. Yeah. And when we use that in our, in our language, you know, when we know we're like, oh, I felt it in my bones or I knew it down to my bones that that was the truth. You know, I, I love that you're bringing this up because when you, when you said it, I, I just got such a clear image um, of when I, um, when I first started to do speaking and I was doing a training workshop and um, somebody told me I moved around a lot and I sighed. I sighed when I was off stage and I did, wasn't totally not aware of it because I was holding everything up in my upper chest, up in my throat. I wasn't breathing enough. So I had to let it out. And I learned to plant both feet in the ground and maybe I might move, I might move a little bit, but I just, I had to stand rooted. And I think this idea of being rooted in the ground that the, what you're talking about, I, I associate with that because when I see men on stage, they stand with their feet apart in a stance that's more athletic. When we see women go on stage, what are they usually wearing? Heels. A dress and heels, yeah. Which, when Kamala Harris showed up for the first time on stage and she was wearing a gorgeous suit in pants and more or less flat heels, I was like, yes. Because she stands like that. She stands rooted, right? She stands rooted in the spot. Um, and I think the fact that women, as women, and I love wearing heels, I love getting dressed up. 
but it's a precarious place to be standing. So how do we stand in our bones? Oh, it is. Well, and I, yeah, and I could talk about the difference between standing on your toes and standing on your heels. Like standing on your toes is basically a fight and flight response because that's like you're ready to run. So it's going to keep your physiology in a more, a a higher alert mode than when you can put your heels Mm -hmm. down. I would love to go, uh, part of your bio that, uh, that I didn't read today talked about your background in improv and being, uh, I, I wanted to go into that a little bit because I think that, uh, that's something that sort of theater background is something that, it's, uh, like it's, it's a space I never thought I would be in in any way, shape or form. And here I am out <laughs> of an executive presence and I've taught, uh, uh, theater students before and they totally get my work in a way that a lot of like they just take it and run with it in the most amazing ways and I wanted to talk a little bit about how that has served you as an attorney and what your role was uh I don't have it up at this second but what your role was you were the first something some uh legal something for a theater company. I just wanted to, uh, to, uh, to circle back to that, but how has the, like the improv and a little bit of that theater training really served you in your own executive presence? Well, I'll, I'll talk about it from two perspectives. One that pre that when I was younger and one as I'm an adult. So when I was in high school, I was in theater. I did uh, musical theater. Uh, I did musical theater twice. I was in Anna Green Gables twice. And no, I was not Anne, despite the red hair. Uh, I was Josie Pye, in case you wanted to know, if it, those of you who followed it, um, which was a ton of fun. Um, and not, I'm not a great singer, but I didn't have too many solo singing lines. Uh, and I loved doing it. I loved doing it. Now, in between then and now, when I was in university, somewhere along the way, I somehow got deconditioned out of speaking up in class about of raising my hand. And so some of those things that affected me later were affecting me during that period. And then one day I was in a law school in an advanced class. It was a seminar class. And my professor, Tony Pickard, she, at the end of the class one day, she said, Carrie, I'd like to see you in my office. And I was like, what's going to go on? Um, but what she wanted to know was, she said, you know, I noticed that I think you're wanting to say things, but you're you're not speaking up in class. And so I'm curious about that. I, she said something like that. And I think I melted into a bucket full of tears because I was I was stressed about something. I was stressed about trying to speak up in class, about having all my ideas locked inside my throat cavity and not feeling like I could get them out with all these brilliant people in my classroom or I'd be judged for them. And then it, even as I broke into tears, I realized that there was something in my childhood that um, had paused, made me pause. And so I shared a few things with her. And it was I shared her name because it was that moment of her, again, seeing me, seeing me, not only what was happening for me in the classroom, but also seeing my possibility. Because she called me forth and she said, well, I'd like to hear from you. So I'd I'd like you to, you know, come to class and and uh, and be prepared to, to to contribute. She didn't make it a condition. She didn't p- make it penalize. She didn't demean me or try to shame me. And so from that moment on, you could not keep me quiet. <laughs> 
So a beautiful transition moment, right? Because she made it safe for me to be vulnerable in her classroom, in her office with the door closed, saw me, recognized me, um, and asked me what was going on and invited me to, to come forward. Um, and I took some speaker training later uh, as well. Now, the theater piece that continued was later on, and I discovered through a dear friend of mine in Toronto when I was living there, and he actually started a, a business called Improv at Work. Um, and he and I did a few things together uh, there, but I think before I moved out to Vancouver. Um, and I sort of always kept that in my mind because he'd done some uh, improv theater. And then I, I took some improv theater courses out here just to study it. Because, you know, when we're looking at ways of dealing with conflict, at my mind at that point, it was around things when I when Andy Burnham, Andrew Burnham, that's his name, in Toronto and I were talking about it. It was because when I was talking about coaching conflict and dealing with conflict as a mediator, a lot of people come, as you say, Melanie, come with this addiction to being right, with this either-or standpoint. I'm right, you're wrong. And in fact, most of the legal system, when we go to court, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to prove the other side wrong, trying to prove our case as being right. And so there's like, it's yes or no, one or the other. What I saw in Andy's work, and when we started to talk about it, was how this was all about yes and, both and. And so when someone says something, you accept what they say. You say a yes to it. It doesn't even have to be that word. This is the core foundation of improv, by the way, is accepting that offer, what they're saying. You don't have to believe it's true. Just accept it and build on it. Accept it and build on it rather than reject it. So if you like going to theater and seeing improvisational theater, the things that are so funny are because... The offer's been accepted. It's been built on, hey, innovation, by the way, until the ridiculous happens or the funny thing happens, right? So we, we, we're adding on. And that's why people have a lot of fun when we're in improv. When we let go of the judgment when we're playing with it, you can go and take improv theater classes without needing to get on stage or be a performer. It's a great exercise. And a good friend of mine here in Vancouver is part of a troupe that goes into corporations and does that work in organizations to help with that. Specifically, I've brought it into uh, negotiation training um, as well as work with my clients one-on-one -on -one, uh, just to say, how can you yes and it? How can it be both and? And therein really lies the value of a coach because one, to see, to really see you and see what's possible for you and see things that are possible that you might not be able to see that are possible for yourself, or for to have that safe space to be able to say, I think, you know, I feel like an imposter, but I still, and I still think this bigger piece is part of my journey. And how do I step into that? And creating momentum with the yes and. Mm -hmm. When I, that's how I talk about it with my clients because certainly for all of my years in working with people in pain, by the time somebody ends up in pain, they've lost, they're losing momentum. They're, mm. they're, they're no butting something or their body's saying no, yeah. and they're not knowing, you know, no, 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 but you need to hear me. And they're like, and that's not uh, like, a, like, and they're not translating that conversation clearly. And uh so I love that you brought all that up because I think that's that's so much what I've gotten out of coaching with you and others. And that's certainly what I like to think that I also offer 
offer my clients. Carrie, tell everybody how they can get in touch with you, what you have going on. Well, sure. Thank you. Well, um, I am always interested in chatting with people who want to take this information forward. You want to build that momentum and and uh, get some traction in your leadership, your negotiations, your ability to influence others. I'm always up for a chat. Uh, so if somebody wants to book a chat with me, they can go to bookachatwithcarry.com. <laughs> Simple as that. If you'd like to join, uh, join me on Instagram or on, what's my other one? On, well, not on Twitter very much. So Instagram, I'm under Instagram. My handle is Gallant Leader, Gallant Leader. Um, and I'm also, on, I'm also on LinkedIn as well. I do a fair bit on LinkedIn in terms of posting articles. And my website is also gallantleader.com. Um, I have some uh, a course on earning your worth uh, for a small course on negotiation that's available at gallantleaderinstitute.com. And I also have a book. As Melanie said, The Conversation Secrets for Tomorrow's Leaders, if you're interested in the book, you can certainly go to Amazon, your favorite bookseller. If you'd like to have some of the free bonus resources, you can bring it. You bring your receipt to 21conversationsecrets.com, and there's some free bonuses that go along with the book there, and we'd be happy to connect with you in that area as well. Great. And just for everybody listening, if you go to book a call with Carrie, it's C-A-R-R-I-E. Correct. Thank you, Melanie. Because <laughs> there are many ways to spell yes. Carrie. <laughs> well, Carrie, it's been so lovely to catch up with you and we certainly need to do this more often. Thank you for being here. Uh, well, thank you for inviting me, Melanie. And I so enjoyed our conversation as always. Thank you for listening to the Fearless Presence Podcast. Text FEARLESS to 411321 to take your first step into fearless presence. For international numbers and more information, including my free playbook, Six Steps to Fearless Presence, go to fearlesspresence.com. Be sure to subscribe for more inspiring stories and information to help you step into your fearless presence.